further ado, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? So head on over to 1 Corinthians 13, and what we see today within these chapters, within these chapter, within these verses, is at the same time appealing to us, but it also feels maybe a little bit unrealistic to us as well. Sure, all of us want to be the sort of person that's described in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, this person of love this and, and how it feels, but the love that we see within chapter 13 might feel a little bit like a fairy tale to us, that it seems a little far-fetched, right? We th- say, like, I live in the real world. I have neighbors who are annoying and they get on my nerves. I have kids who just for the life of me won't listen and they frustrate me. You know, and if I want to succeed in my job in this dog-eat-dog world, then I have to have a little bit of an edge to me. I can't be soft. But if you read this chapter and you, and you might think, well, this type of love that Paul is displaying sounds a little sentimental and I can't really identify with that. And if that's you today feeling that way, you're not alone. Many, mainly men, feel that way about this chapter. But if you really understand what Paul is saying about love in these verses, these 13 verses, sentimental will be the last word on your mind. Because Christian love oftentimes, if not all the time, is, it's not clicking, there it is, is countercultural and oftentimes confrontational. And not in a bad nature, but confrontation. We need to get back to a part in our society where we remember that confrontation is a good thing. We can't get always offended at all these things. We need to be confronting each other if we're going to be living holy, godly, pleasing lives. So as I said, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. It's the great love chapter. Some of you probably had this read at your weddings. Others of you probably had it cross-stitched above your kitchen table or something along those lines. And, And that's all fine. It's all okay to throw it on your coffee mug or have it read at your wedding. But we must remember that the context of 1 Corinthians 13, when we look at it, is in the context of the gathered church. How you and I at Fellowship Baptist Church, or whatever church that we call home, that we exemplify this type of love to each other. Now, it can apply to all other types, but mainly what Paul has in focus here is the love of the church. Specifically, since chapter 12 speaking, he throws it strategically in here in 13. He's talking about love and the use of our spiritual gifts. So there's a problem that Paul is trying to correct. As you remember from last week in 12, that the the, the Corinthians were a very gifted church, but they were using their gifts for show instead of service, right? They were using their gifts to boast rather than to bless. And this was an issue for Paul. And they believed that these gifts, the the, the Corinthians believed that these gifts kind of elevated them above others to, to make themselves more spiritually superior. I can speak in tongues. I can cast out demons with my eyes closed. I can do all these different things. And, and they started to look down on the other gifts, like administration and, and the gifts of helping and, and things like that, which are very vital, which came to that point of the pinky toe. We need all parts of our body working and healthy. And Paul wants to show the Corinthians, and he wants to show us today that unless all of our gifts, everything we do as Christians is driven by love, if it's not driven by love, then it's worthless to God. He won't bless it. Love is everything in the Christian life. 
So yes, as I said, you can apply these principles that we will look at today to all of your relationships, be it romance, family, friendships, neighbors, but we must never forget that the love that Paul is primarily talking about here, the most immediate context, is the love within the church, in your local church. Yes, the broad, universal church, but specifically here at Fellowship Baptist Church, your love to one another. And remember, when we read, and we can prove this by looking at the last few verses of chapter 12, which is why I didn't read them last week, because you've got to remember, in the original writings, there was no such things as chapter or verses. If you want to scare yourself, look at an original manuscript of Greek. There's not even spaces between the words. It's just letters. Like, talk about, like, efficiency. They didn't have to lift their pencil. They just kept going, you know? And uh, so they, there's no chapters, no verses. Those got implemented to help me go, hey, turn to this part of your Bible instead of you throwing throwing out a whole scroll and walking across the other way, trying to figure out where you're going. So when, and I say that, so when you're reading the Bible, you don't get too bogged down by the chapters or the verses. Because a lot of times you have to read them together to understand what's happening. So let's start with chapter 12, verse 29 to 31, which says, are all prophets? Are, are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Now what Paul's doing is asking rhetorical questions. The answer is no. But earnestly, he says, desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. He's saying, earnestly desire the gifts that will enable you to better serve each other within the local church. And then he ends 12, by saying, and I'm still going to show you a more excellent way. And then he starts chapter 13 by saying this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all the faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Those are some pretty strong words. Paul is essentially saying in those words, is, it is possible for you and I to do religious things from selfish motivations. But the list, but the list that he puts there is pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, this isn't low-level stuff. This seems pretty impressive. Look at what he highlights through verses 1 to 3. One thing I just want to say quickly before we move on is I'm not going to put always full scriptures up on the screen today. I'm going to take chunks of them because we're going to deal with things in isolation today. So please have your Bible open. Okay, he says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels... Remember, the Corinthians, they idolized language in tongues, and they thought if they could speak in tongues, again, which is always a human language, biblically speaking, not gibberish, always a human language, every time it's mentioned in the Bible. And, uh, he said, and they thought if they could do this, that they were now spiritually superior, that they've reached the pinnacle of being a Christian. And we're going to talk more about that and deal with that more in chapter 14. I know I keep teasing you about this. He says, if I have great prophetic powers, in other words, I can perceive exactly what the Spirit wants to say in a situation, and God frequently uses me to speak directly to people based upon his word. And if I understand all mysteries in knowledge. You know, these are the people who can just wrestle with all the complex subjects, be it Calvinism, the Trinity, when Jesus is coming back, or how many angels can dance on the head of a needle, right? They, you name it, they can talk about it and explain it. Or if I have faith as to move mountains, 
right? Again, remember last week, this faith is not the faith that God has given all of us unto salvation. This is like a special type of faith that we can perceive into what God is wanting to do within a situation and we can pray for it and ask for it. I use the, uh, the illustration of the men lowering the lame friend down to Jesus and he saw the faith of the men lowering them down and God healed the individual. And Paul is saying, we don't have just a little bit of this. You have a lot and it's enough to move mountains. Or if I deliver my body to be burned. That's radical generosity right there. Radical generosity. You can't get more radically sacrificial than that. This is actually a picture that Paul has in mind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego, I don't know how you say it. A billy goat, as VeggieTales says. And this is a, so this is a picture of, of people who are willing to give up all for God, be it their life, their comfort, their finances, the place they have always called home. And this pulls out more than just actions, but it goes to motives. They're not giving everything up so people go, wow, look at that. Look at that man or that woman sacrificing so much. No, their desire to be burned, their desire to give up everything is so that God would be glorified and not themselves. And this is what Paul is saying. But I left out all the qualifiers to all those verses. And Paul says, Fellowship Baptist Church, you can be the most gifted church you want to be. You could have the most dynamic speakers that you could hire. You could have all the showings of all the gifts within these four walls, but if you don't have love, doesn't even matter if you've gave up everything, you actually gain nothing. You gain nothing. It's worthless. Love is everything in the Christian life. Everything. And Jesus said you could reduce everything in the Christian life down to two teachings, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these things, you will do everything else in the Christian life naturally. But we tend to ignore these things, and we start to try to focus on other things. And we put the cart before the horse, and we wonder why there's so much division and conflict within the local churches, Because we're failing to love God primarily and to love others. And you say, well, why would anyone ever want to do these things if, if love wasn't the basis? Because many people do religious things without love. And that's a great question. And the answer is because, firstly, love of praise. They love praise. What you are after is affirmation and admiration of others. And doing religious things is how you obtain that. You used to maybe do this by being good at sports or succeeding in work or trying to be the life of the party at all the social gatherings, and now you're doing religious things for the same reason. And this seems to be what's going on in Corinth. God is not so much beautiful to them as he is useful to them. You might be thinking, well, what's the difference between something being beautiful and something being useful? Well, you may be fervently devoted to it only because it's a means to something else. Picture it this way. Imagine a man, he hears about a woman who is an heiress to a great fortune. And he goes, I want that money. So he starts to court this woman. And he he becomes a model boyfriend. But but, but she kind of just really bores him. She just bores him a little bit because he's after her fortune so, uh, fortune. so he becomes devoted to her. He becomes a model boyfriend. All her girlfriends are saying, I wish I had a boyfriend like that guy. He is so devor- devoted to you, but it has nothing to do with who she is. But it has everything to do with what she can provide to him, which is her money. And there are a lot of people who serve God devotedly, but only because he is useful as a means to other things. 
Maybe it's a good marriage. You think my marriage is on the rocks, so maybe I should commit myself stronger to Christ and he will impair my marriage and and things like that, and you're doing it all for the wrong reasons. Maybe it's just you using God as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Well, I'm not too interested in God or following his commands, but I really don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to just buckle down and try to uh, force this love for him. You might be using God just to get into heaven, and that's wrong. If you can picture heaven without Jesus being there, then that's an issue. That's an issue. That means your prize is not Christ. Your prize is just comfort and security. I was doing a continuing care visit the other day. These are some of my favorite visits, and I I wish I could do more of them. But I was talking with this lady, and she was, I think she was being humorous. I took it as funny anyways. But uh, she was talking, she was just reflecting upon the fact of how many older people become very sweet in their old age, even though they they were being as mean as snakes, she says, when they were younger. And she says they get sweet because they're concerned about heaven. And I kind of found that humorous, but at the same time, a little sad. Because you realize that all your good works done in order to earn something from God are by definition inherently selfish. If you say, I'm going to do all these good things so God blesses me, that's selfish. Because you're doing it to get something. Charles Spurgeon tells a great story about a carrot farmer. And it's a made-up story, but it's a great way to illustrate this. He talks about a, a carrot farmer who dug up the biggest carrot he has ever had in his life. And he says, this carrot is worth, worthy of a king. So he brings it to an old, an old English king's court. And he says, king, when I saw this carrot, I knew. I knew this, king was, this carrot was for you. It was worthy of a king. And I just want to give it to you because you have protected us well. You have led us well. You have, you have defended our borders well. And I am your devoted, loyal subject. And the king was moved by this. And he said, you know what? You know what? I happen to loan, own a bunch of land right next to your farm. Let me give you 300 more acres because of your generosity. It's how moved he was. And one of the king's noblemen was standing in the court and he goes, Oh, my word. If that's how the king responds to just a carrot, how would he respond to a real gift like a, like a horse? So he goes out and he finds the, the best horse he can find and, and he trots it into the king's court the next day all proud. And he says, oh, king, when I saw this horse, I knew it was worthy of a king. And I want to give it to you as your loyal subject. But the king was a wise king, and he knew that the nobleman was only giving him the horse in order to get something from him. So the king says to him, yesterday, the carrot farmer was giving the carrot to me. Today, you are giving the horse to yourself. Friend, every religion in the world, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaches that whether God accepts you or not into heaven is based on your good works, how good you are as a person. And that will produce some fervent adherence to their religion, even to the point of death. Some of the most religiously devoted people that I've ever been around in my life are our Muslim brothers and sisters, our friends. I, uh, back in Chatham, a school opened up. Uh, it was a sacred knowledge school of Islam. And, and, and is- Islamic people from all over the world came to study in southwestern Ontario in this little farm city. And the, the town turned their backs on them. People started selling their house because they were afraid and they, they were very racist and other things like that. And my friend and I said, man, we need to reach these people with the gospel. 
So we went to this Muslim school every week to play soccer with them and talk to them. And, and then we started to build a friendship with them. We started having theological conversations. I got to meet the top man, the top dog, Abraham. He invited us to come and sit in on their worship, their five daily prayers. And, and I sat there and I listened and I watched as they were fervently devoted but as I would sit out on the steps with them at nighttime and talk to them and I'd ask them, why? What, what is your security? And they said, we serve Allah because we are scared of hell. They didn't use those words exactly, but that's what they're getting at. And the five pillars of Islam, they would say, is what secures us if we follow those devotedly. See how fear is the motivation there. They want security. And it, they've produced fervent adherence. But when you do good works to earn anything from God, the good works are inherently selfish. You're not serving God because he's beautiful. You're serving him because he's a means to an end. And that's eternal life. And that's, what, that's what's happening with these Corinthians. Their motivation is, in their spiritual gifts was to set themselves above others. And Paul says that's inherently selfish. And that makes you nothing in God's eyes. And that makes you annoying. Like a clanging gong or a, a clanging cymbal, as verse 1 tells us. And by the way, when Paul uses the example of cymbals, it's likely he was actually thinking of the temples of Sibel or Dionysius, which is right there in Corinth, because they would use in their worship service clanging cymbals. It was very noisy and loud because in their theology, their gods are always distracted. So you have to get their attention somehow. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, at the end of the day, our, religion, our religious devotion is just paganism dressed up in Christian clothes if we do not love. It's no different. Symbols can be a beautiful part of an orchestra. But what makes a symphony a symphony is that every instrument is pursuing one united sound. That every instrument is surrendering their individual sound to blend into one beautiful single sound. Symphony literally means same sound. You don't want some guy over in the corner with his cowbell drawing all the attention to himself. Or when tambourines were a big thing in the church, you don't want that lady off beating the front row messing up all the practice the worship team did that week, drawing attention to themselves. No matter how good you are at playing your instrument, it doesn't help unless it's surrendered to the good of the whole. And apart from love, every other religious act is empty hollow and displeasing to God and annoying to those around you. And so just because you are religiously fervent or just because you are gifted on the outside doesn't mean you are spiritually healthy on the inside. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were. They were impressive religiously on the outside, but they were full of selfish immaturity within the inside. I've heard a medical term. It's called totofoti. Totofoti. Imagine getting diagnosed with that. It means thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Okay, it's not a real medical term, but I think it should be. All right? <laughs> okay. But what it refers to is that cursed group of people who can eat whatever they want. Like, they're the people at your holiday dinner who eat seven pieces of pumpkin pie, all the sweets in sight, and they're still a toothpick the next time you see them. I hate those people. Okay, hate's a strong word. I extremely dislike them. Um, but, <laughs> but here's the thing. Their weight can be deceptive because people assume that thin means healthy. 
Sometimes people are thin, and because of that, their heart issues and other things get missed because they look healthy on the outside. But truth is, if you, if you, if you just uh, looked on the inside, you'd see that their hearts are all clogged up from all the unhealthy eating. Corinthian worship services looked fit. They looked dynamic. They were healthy. They had intense worship. They had miraculous signs. They had gifted leaders and speakers. But it was all just on the outside. Inside, if you look past their crazy services, if you looked past all their gifts, and you peered into their heart like God sees, what you would see is hearts clogged with selfishness and pride. So this all begs the question, what does real love look like then? So Paul, in verses 4 to 7, he gives us 15-part description of love. And you think my sermons have too many parts? Paul would have failed modern preaching classes that says keep it in three parts. He put 15 parts in three verses. Anyways, we're going to look at all 15 very quickly, I promise. Okay, very quickly. So, 15 aspects of love. And remember, these 15 aspects of love, the context is here. The local church gathered. Yes, you can apply it to any other relationship but it's primarily talking about here. So for the next couple minutes, I want you to think, reflect about your relationships within these four walls. So starting with verse four, again, I'm just gonna give you snippets, so be in your Bible. Starting with verse four, we see that love is patient and kind. Patience means that you don't expect others to be perfect, and you're okay with that, that they're not perfect. I remember when God revealed to me that I had a lack of patience to others, but at the same time, I had a high expectation that others would be patient with me. And that's a sobering moment. And some of us, we tend to do this. We, We engage with people, we see their weaknesses, we get upset that they're weak, but as soon as we show our weaknesses, we expect them to be patient with us. So the question that we should be asking is if if God accepted me or treated me how I'm treating those around me, how would I fare? That's a very sobering question to reflect on. How would you fare if God treated you the way that you were treating others within this church? How would you fare? Love is patient, church, but Paul also says love is kind. And kind really means considerate. doesn't mean like that false Canadian, oh, I'm so happy, I'll never hurt you until we get on the ice, right? That type of happiness. It, it means that love considers others' needs instinctively. It's not just happy when you're just okay. It, it, it's, so, it's that you're happy when, you know, you're trying to work with them when they're not okay. Because naturally, we consider ourselves by, by, by default. But love considers also's, others also. And then Paul continues and said, love does not envy nor does it boast. To envy means that you rejoice in somebody else's blessing when you're not experiencing the blessing that you've been praying for and maybe been praying for it for years. What happens when the person gets the house that you wanted? What happens when they get the promotion that you've been striving for or the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you've always thought you needed to have when their ministry or their business grows and yours doesn't? What happens? Parents, what are your attitudes when somebody else's kid is succeeding and yours isn't? Sure, it's okay to be uh, be sad about your kid and try to help them, but are you envious to the other parents and kids? Do you despise their blessing, secretly wishing destruction upon them that they would struggle too? I really hope not, but a lot of people do. But love is not like that. Love rejoices in other people's blessings even when you're not experiencing them yourself. How about when someone gets an honor or recognition and you're being overlooked? 
Love delights in the happiness of others, even when you're unhappy. Paul goes on and says, love is not arrogant. Arrogant means always thinking of itself preeminently, always focused on its rights and its own entitlements, believing that you deserve everything and you're irritated when you're not getting them. And love is not like that. He says, love is not rude. Some scholars, and I would tend to agree with them, says rude should be better translated as dishonoring. But I, I, and I think that's what more Paul has in mind. Love is not dishonoring a person by treating them like a commodity for your happiness, to fulfill your needs. That you would evaluate everyone by how they fit into your scheme of what makes up your life and what makes your life good. Be it emotionally, sexually, or whatever it does, whatever it is. Love does not treat people like cogs in the machine of your happiness. And Paul puts arrogant and rude together because he's saying that a person who loves doesn't approach life as if it's all about them and everybody else has to fit in to fulfill their purposes. And when they don't fulfill your purpose, you ax them from your life. That's not what love does. But then Paul continues in verse 5 saying, love does not insist on its own way. When you live a self-focused life, you see other people coming into your life to fulfill your needs. See how much of this is based upon selfishness, all of these. You want to make them to play their part in your life, and when they don't play their part, they get angry. By the way, one of the major instruments that God uses to break this mentality in us is marriage. Because theoretically, marriage should be that another person is coming into your life that you are now more focused on than your own needs. But guess what? We're sinners. And guess what we like to do? We like to commandeer marriage and try to make marriage all about somebody else being more focused on my needs so somebody's taking care of me. And that's wrong. Marriage should be two individuals coming as one. We should be waking up as husbands and wives should be waking up as wives going, how can I serve and love my husband? How can I serve and love my wife? And if we had that mentality, a lot of tensions within marriage would be broken down and gone. But yet we get selfish and we try to get them to meet our needs all the time. There'll be a time if you're sick or things like that where, yeah, it's going to pull on them. But primarily, it's to be dying to each other. So God knows that we're sinners. And God knows that we're going to try to commandeer marriage. So he sends along his second instrument, his master class in breaking the backs of our selfishness, which is kids. <laughs> Those vipers and diapers, amen, right? <laughs> Because those kids are not going to think about any of your needs for a very long time. Kids, especially when they're young, never look at you and go, Oh, Dad. Oh, Mom, you look so tired today. Why don't you put your feet up? How can I be a blessing to you this evening? No, they never do that. Not till they're older, maybe. Unless you have a special kid. If it's not, I'll adopt them. So, but with kids, quite often... What I want out of a day, what my wife wants out of a day, what we want out of a vacation normally doesn't happen, right? In fact, I think I'm going to stop calling family vacations family vacations because there's no vacationing actually happening, at least not by me or Bailey, right? Actually, I think vacations are more escalations, right? That just seems to go on. So I'm going to change the name of family vacations to just family trips, And I think that's going to help because it's going to change my expectations of what I want out of that that experience. And if I don't come back more tired than when I left, then I know I wasn't being a good dad. So love takes this attitude towards others as well in our life. How many times have we been upset with a friend for not understanding exactly what we needed at the moment and they didn't give it to you? Right? They were needy when you needed them to be strong. They were down when you wanted them to be up. They were blind and they didn't see what you actually needed. 
And so what selfishness will tell you in your mind is, I better reevaluate this friendship. But what love says is, no, 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 I'm not here to insist on getting my own way. I'm here to serve and not be served like my Savior. Because Paul says also that love is not irritable. And irritable means not easily triggered. Have a Snickers bar if you're anything like me, right? Just calm down. Because self-centeredness sees the world primarily through the lens of what it needs and what it wants. It gets quick to anger when those needs are not fulfilled and those desires are squashed. But love doesn't think through those filters. Love is patient. So when it gets frustrated and it gets disappointed, it doesn't just hit the road. It's patient because remember the first one, it knows that you're not perfect and it's okay with that. Love is not resentful. This means you keep no records of wrong. That's actually how the NIV describes or translates. It says, love keeps no records of wrong. So when somebody hurts or disappoints you, do you drag up all the previous ways that they let you down? Right? When some people get angry, they get hysterical. Others get historical. Come on. Right? You did this. That connects to this. And, and, and you did that. And you said that back then. Remember in 2009 when you did that? Oh, and your parents told me that you were like this in high school. And this connects to that. It's just crazy. There are spouses who actually keep journals of ways that their spouses have disappointed them. That's not setting you up for a good marriage. That's not setting you up for good friendships if that's what you're doing with each other. But some of us, we don't keep physical lists, but we do keep phys- uh, m- uh, mental lists up in our brain. And that, do you see how out of step that puts you with 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no records of wrong. Past wrongs are like spent ammunition. You can't fire them again. They're in the past. Work through reconciliation. Forgive each other and move on. Move on. Love also does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, right? Not, love never delights when someone struggles. You know, those people, you're just like, wish something bad happened to them. Love doesn't do that. And it cares enough also to speak up when you see a friend or, or somebody in your life doing something that will hurt them. And some personalities have more problems with verse 5, and others have more problems with verse 6. And maybe that's a good picture of you and your spouse. One feels often that you need to confront everything, deal with it now, and you have trouble letting things go. And the other one's like, no, 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 just sweep that thing under the rug. We'll deal with that later. And those two normally end up marrying each other, okay? And that's what happens. But love, love, verse 6 presents the question is, do you love someone enough to speak truth into their life? even if you know that that truth, even done in a loving way, might cause a break of relationship for time or even a total cutout for a time? Do you care enough about that person to be uncomfortable with them? Because we don't want to deal with fake friendships because fake friendships, all they do is that they just want to look past all the ugly and pretend they live in some utopia where no wrongs happen and they'll never confront anything, but God's love calls us to more. God's love calls us to confront. It's more than, just, more than just pretending. It's truly doing life together and getting messy together. Because love bears all things. It doesn't want to switch. Love bears all things. Right? When you love someone, you patiently endure the wounds of their selfishness and their immaturity. And, and, and that's what real love, it takes time. They know that, that change takes real time. None of the big changes in my life ever came because one person had one conversation with me or I heard one sermon. The big changes in my life were results of someone faithfully sowing the truth of God into my life in the soils of unconditional love. They knew I was a mess. 
And the people I listen to most in my life are those who I say have sort of locked the back door of our relationship, meaning they're not going anywhere. They know I'm a mess. I know they're a mess, and we're going to work this out. The doors are locked. They've made it clear that they're not leaving me and that our relationship is not conditioned on me getting everything right because I won't. They know that I'm going to disappoint them, that I'm going to frustrate them, and they, but they're mine for life, and they're stuck. Because if they didn't lock it, I did. And I, I bolted it. So they're not getting out. And they have to deal with my dumbness. And that might take a while to change. And the, vice, the same is true. I have that relationship with them. So you need to be that type of person to somebody. And somebody needs to be a type of person to you. Because love bears all things. It, it, it's used to feeling underappreciated. C.S. Lewis says, if you do good things for your friends in hopes that they will see what you do and appreciate it, you're going to be disappointed. Don't do good things just to be rewarded. Love believes all things and hopes all things. We put those two together. Because never, love never gives up hope for the person that you're dealing with. It never stops believing in who that person could be that God has created them to be. Paul's not talking about silly, naive optimism where you refuse to see faults in people's lives, but that you just never give up on what God could do in that person's life. You perceive what God has created that person to be and how he could recreate that person to be. Think of it kind of like a good dad with a child. A good dad may see clearly all his child's faults, and he brings correction and all that, but he never stops believing in the amazing person that that person could be. Obviously, a dad, you're giving them instruction, and you're modeling that instruction, and you're calling them to a higher standard. But at the same time, it's coupled with this idea that you've never stopped giving, you never gave up hope on who that person, who your child could be, even when it gets bad. And I know some of you have been through that, where you've weathered the storms with your children, and God has been faithful to you. Paul also doesn't mean an overly credulous Sorry. So by saying love believes all things and hopes all things, Paul doesn't mean that you have just this naive optimism, but you have a confidence in how God has made them and intends to use them. And he also doesn't mean an overly credulous assumption that they never do anything wrong. Because love believes all things. You say, you know, they might say to you, well, I'm not doing that, or I don't struggle with that, or I don't have a problem with that. And you could say, well, love believes all things, so I'm not going to investigate. I'll just accept that. No. Because love also sometimes has to ask the hard questions and press down and expose what is being hidden. So, what we do, for example, what do we do when a woman comes to my office and says her husband's abusing her? And I go to her husband and her husband says, heck no, I'm not abusing her. What do we do? What do we do? Do we just say, we just give him the benefit of doubt automatically? Say, well, love believes all things. I'm not going to follow this up. What about her? Why don't we give her the benefit of the doubt? Love does not naively close its eyes when difficult questions are in order. Love believes all things, hopes all things, means that love never stops recognizing the incredible creation that God made this person to be and, or giving up hope of what God can do in their lives. We serve a Savior, church, that prayed, Father, forgive those the ones who are nailing the nails through his wrists and his feet, the one who pierced his side with a, with a spear, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is nothing that our resurrected Savior cannot fix, cannot redeem, cannot heal. There is still hope for that person in your life that is bordering on you giving up. There is still hope for that person. Love believes all those things for them. And the last quality, and ending very quickly, love endures all things. Again, it never gives up. 
It's going through it. It's bound to that person. It doesn't want to give up because you're not happy until you see that person complete. So that's your 15-part description of love that Paul lays out. And that leads us to this last million-dollar question. How can we produce that love in our hearts? I mean, if you're like me, when you read that list, you're not thinking, well, that's the clearest description of me I've ever heard. I've never identified with something more. No, probably if you're like me, you read that and you go, ooh, that doesn't sound exactly like me. And some of the points that Paul makes, maybe I think he's describing the opposite of me. So what do I do? Do I just memorize this list and then for the next 15 weeks just try to drill away at them? Or do I try to muster up this emotion of love in my heart and just kind of force it out and fake it till I make it? No. That won't help. In fact, that's going to be exhausting because that's my personality and I've tried that a hundred times. You can't produce love in your heart no matter how hard you try. Martin Luther talks about this dilemma when he talks about the great dilemma of the, of the, of the great commandment. And you know, the great commandment is Jesus commands us to love the Lord the God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's a command, not a suggestion. Jesus is commanding us to do that. And by definition, that's something that can't be commanded. If you love something, you don't need to be commanded to do it. You never have to command me to eat a steak, take a nap, or kiss my wife, right? I do all those by desire. But on the other hand, if I hate something, if I don't love it, no command's going to change that. You can compel obedience, like we talked about with our Muslim friends, but you cannot compel desire. For example, I hate, I just hate with a dark, revolting passion, olives, just disgusting. And I've tried them because I love food. And I've tried them. And they just make me sick. Yes. <laughs> Go home. No. <laughs> but if you after service, if you're big enough, you could probably force me to eat one. But you'll never force me to love them. Because this kind of love that Paul's talking about is received before it's shown. So if you look at that list that Paul's listed out for us, those 15 attributes, he's actually describing somebody substitute the name Jesus every time you see the the word love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind, right? Jesus considered our needs higher than his. That's why he bore our sins on the cross and rose again. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast, right? Philippians says he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and he came to serve and die on the cross for us. So Jesus, uh, 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 sorry, Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. In fact, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. He was a friend of sinners, a man of sores, acquainted with grief. Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing. He called people higher, but he rejoiced with the truth. Uh, Jesus, he believed all things. He hoped all things. He bore all things. His love would not let go until he could boldly declare from the cross, it is finished. It's why the apostle John says, we love him. Why? because we were commanded to, because it's the right thing to do, because we have accountability partner, because he'll put us in hell if we don't know. We love him because he first loved us. And understanding that, basking that, is how you produce the love of God in you. Look, only Jesus can give you freedom to love others like this. You have to have confidence that Jesus is the one who will fulfill all your needs, who will work out all things for good. And when you believe that, you're free from feeling so dependent on everyone else to do it. When you're dependent on others to meet your needs, you're going to feel driven to control them. 
because you don't want them to let you down because they're, 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 they're their happiness, they're your fulfillment and your security. So of course you want to control them. Of course your friends have to appreciate you more than others. Of course your wife or husband has to say this or do that. But when you're confident in Jesus' love, you're not captive to them anymore. You can release them and actually love them rather than using them. Only Jesus can keep us from boasting and enviness. Think of it. Why do we boast? Because we're boasting because we're insecure. I want you to think that I'm great because on the inside, I don't feel too great. So I try to boast so you'll say, oh, you're so amazing. And then I can pat myself on the back for another week. I envy because I think I need what you have to be happy. And envy shows that deep down that we're just unhappy, dissatisfied people. And only Jesus' love can cure that. Only Jesus' love fills the emptiness of your heart so much that you have the capacity to love others. I love Tim Keller's illustration of this. He says, the only time you think about a part of your body is when it's in pain. For example, I'm not thinking about my knee right now because it's not in pain. It's just hanging out there, being a knee, doing what knees do. But if my knee was in pain, I'd be thinking about it. And I don't just... Uh, uh, mentally think about it, ask my wife, I like verbally complain because I'm just a big baby, you know, on my knee again, like when I get up and I sit down and I walk around, I'm just, I'm just complaining because my knee hurts. And so what Te- Keller is saying is when you're thinking about yourself all the time, always talking about yourself all the time, what that actually tells you is that you've got a problem. Your soul's hurting. Something's hurting in you because if you were working well, if your soul wasn't hurting, you would have, to, you'd have the ability and healthy enough to think of others. But when you're hurting, you don't. Just like, oh, my shoulder hurts, my shoulder hurts. That's what you're always thinking about. Only Jesus can heal the hurt part of you. The love that Jesus gives you, the acceptance that you crave, the significance that you crave, the promises that he gives you, the security that you need, he gives that all to you in Christ. And then he teaches you how to love. So how could you hold somebody accountable for a $2 offense when you have been forgiven a billion-dollar offense against God? How can you keep no record of wrong? Again, the answer is only by soaking yourself in the love of God, really just preaching this to yourself, how much God loves you. Never graduate past that. That's not basics of Christianity. That is Christianity. Never think you need to stop talking about love. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So press into God's unconditional love for you in Christ. Grapple with it, wrestle with it, understand it. Because in that, God will produce 1 Corinthians 13 type of love in you. So let me just close by reading the last few verses that will set us up for chapter 14. Not next week, because Dave's here, but the week after. Verse 8 says, love never ends. It's never going away, right? Not for eternity. Why? Because God is love. As for prophecies, they will all pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. He's talking about right now. Jesus isn't here, so we need gifts, but we're doing them all at They have issues, right? They're in fault. They're in part. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes, all the partial will pass away. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. He's given a picture of when the perfect comes. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. So I needed things like prophecy and miracles and tongues, he's saying. But when when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, meaning when the perfect comes. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. 
So as for all these other spiritual gifts that he enlists there, Paul's saying all that's going to fade away in heaven. It's all going to cease. We'll have no need for prophecy because we're going to know God's mind perfectly. We'll have no need for the gifts of exhortation or teaching because the knowledge of God is going to wash over us like the sea washes over the land. We don't need miracles because nobody will be sick, amen? But guess what will remain? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love, they last forever. And the greatest of those is love, church. It's the currency of heaven. So if you're going to focus on anything, this is the message that Paul is saying in the middle of this whole discussion on spiritual gifts. If you're going to focus on anything, because the Corinthians were focusing on tongues and prophecies and signs and wonders, and they're making this the gospel. And Paul's saying, if you're going to focus on anything, if you're going to grow on anything, if you're going to perfect anything in this life, be it love. Because love never ends. Love never ends. And the same command is from me to you today from Scripture. If you're going to try to grow in anything today, church, for the rest of your life, be it love. Because when you love, when you understand God's love for you and you begin to operate in God's love for others, all those other gifts, they'll just find their place in your life. They will be rightly ordered in your life. But when you maximize something that's going to cease, it kicks you off kilter. And it causes a whole bunch of disorder within the church. And we're going to see in chapter 14 that God is a God of order. Amen? And that's what we're after. So let it be love. Let's grow in love. Let's spur each other on in love. Let's commit to each other. Let's lock the back doors in our relationship. Let's not run at the first sign of trouble, but let's hunker down together and love each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for Fellowship Baptist Church. I thank you, O Lord, for the love that you've produced in our hearts. But Lord, that's one of those things that we can always be growing in. May we never be satisfied with where we're at in our love, but let us just keep going and loving like your love is vast, O oh God. Father, we know this is the irony of Christianity that those who are saved, those who persevere into the end are not the ones who think that they have to be perfect, but the ones who understand that you are perfect and that you are perfect for us. And Lord, through the process of sanctification, you are shaping and growing us and forming us to be more like you more like your love. So, Lord, let Fellowship Baptist Church, let us as Christians be known for our love, O oh Lord. Not just this Hollywood, fake, flimsy love that dissipates at the sign of any trouble, but a steadfast love. The Hebrew word hesed, the steadfast love that is based upon God. Lord, let that be our love for our marriages, for our families, for the people sitting next to us, and for our relationship with the community. Let us love, O oh Lord, because we don't want to be in a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, but we want to bring sweet melodies to your ear. In Jesus' name, amen.